Well, good morning, Fullerton Free. My name is Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff. If you're standing, you can have a seat. And uh, if you're a kiddo or a young person, uh, a child, I suppose, we're really glad you're here. But one of the things we're trying this week, uh, and we're going to be trying in uh, in the weeks in the future, is that our children's ministry has pre- uh, produced a video called Kids Connection. And hopefully you got an email about that earlier this week, and you've already downloaded it. But kids, I want to let you know that now is the time. If you have already downloaded that Kids Connection video, this is a chance for you to drop your headphones in or walk to the guest room or whatever and get your iPads or your laptops or uh, whatever device you've got that you've got that Kids Connection video on. But you're going to be studying this same passage in James chapter 3 and 4 as, uh, as your parents and I or your friends and I are going to be doing. And so uh, I just encourage you to turn that on now and then come back to us later and we'll worship God more through song in a few minutes. For those of you who aren't tuning into Kids Connection, uh, I invite you to open up your Bibles to James thirteen if, or James 3, 13 if you haven't done that already. In our continuing study of the book of James, which we've sort of subtitled Viewing the Invisible, the entire book is giving us this challenge that ultimately what we believe internally will be made manifest externally. That we won't have to necessarily talk all the time about what we claim to believe because our life will put that on display. There is an evidential exterior that happens in the life of believers because of what has been transformed internally. And so this is a continuation of some of those practicalities. Everything we're reading today in in chapter 3 and 4 It all happens in relationship, and I want to say before we dive into the nitty-gritty of what we see in the text here, that for me, as I read this text, I hear alarm bells going off. I hear alarm bells going off. I don't know if in the last uh, year or so you've had a chance to watch the new uh, Chernobyl film that came out. Uh, It's it's a little gritty, so it's probably not great for kiddos, but but an incredible film as far as representing what happened in that nuclear disaster that happened in the 80s in Chernobyl. And one of the things that you see is... if you've read the, the, the books about that or you've watched the documentaries or you've seen that film is that uh, they've got all these systems in place, checks and balances, and on the night of that nuclear disaster, there are alarm bells going off everywhere. There are all kinds of gauges and whistles and sirens and lights that are flashing going, this isn't going to work out very well. But at the time, the reason why that disaster occurs as we understand it now, and we didn't necessarily understand it this way when it first happened, but as we put all the data together now, we understand that, that despite the fact that there were alarms and whistles and sirens and all kinds of things, that the technicians in that location, number one, were following faulty guidelines, right? They had been given some instructions and guidelines that were missing major components that they needed. And not only that, they were under the direction of people who had false motives because of their ambition or because of their fear or because of their desire to look a certain way. They pressed onward despite the warning bells, despite the sirens and the signals, they continued forward into what ultimately resulted into a huge, uh, a, a a huge catastrophe, loss of life and uh, environmental destruction and all kinds of things because despite the warning bells, uh, they, they just kept following the faulty information they had. For me, when I read at the end of James 3 and the beginning of James 4 and I think about the world in which we live, I hear these sirens and I see these flashing lights. There's a warning because much of what is described in uh, the end of three and the beginning of four is, I think, pervasive in the world in which we live. I, I, I can't imagine that anybody who's tuning in this morning to our worship service is unaware of the division, is unaware of the constant fighting over huge things and little things, whether it's political division or division over whether to wear a mask or not to wear a mask or whether to go to restaurants or 
or not to go to restaurants. There is division in almost every category. I mean, I can't think of any place right now where people aren't fighting in some way over things for their own position and for their own beliefs and for their own, uh, for, for their own rightness, if you will. And I want to say this morning as we begin this text, there is an absolute necessity for us to pay attention to the alarms that are going off in our world. To pay attention to the alarms that are going off in our hearts as we look at the chaos and the constant battle that's happening among both people who don't know Christ, but but more terribly among people who do know Christ. Even inside the body of Christ, there are these warring factions and this constant division and frustration. I want us to feel the alarms and recognize the places in which we may have been misled. The places in which we may be following faulty path or faulty guidelines and we have to return again, as James will call us in this text, to the wisdom that is from above and not the motivations or the thinking or the worldview that is earthly and unspiritual and demonic, as we'll see in the text. Let's dive into it together. Now, remember at the beginning of three, he said, not many of you should presume to be teachers. We talked about that last week. If you weren't with us, you can go back and watch that study or study it on your own. But he said, not many of you should presume to be teachers. You have to be really careful about what you do with your tongue. And then now, though, he says, who is wise and understanding among you? This is verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? And I don't know if he's imagining that at that moment there are going to be some of us who are like, yeah, that's me, you know, kind of slip their hand up and go, I'm pretty wise. I know a lot of stuff. I've read a lot of books. I've been around. I've been, I've lived a pretty decent life. I am wise and understanding. I don't know whether or not he's trying to bait and switch people here. I, I don't really think that's probably the character of James, the elder in this place. But he asks the question, who of you is wise and understanding? Remember, he's already said not all of us should presume to be teachers. But he says, if you are wise and have understanding, there is something for you to do. You may not be called and gifted to teach, but there is a responsibility for you who are associated with God, who is the source of all wisdom. Remember, Job will say that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of God is where where we find the beginning of all understanding and wisdom. He says in 13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. By his good conduct, let him show his, his works, his good works in the meekness of wisdom. That is a packed full sentence and a packed full challenge. He says, if you, if you know God, If you're aware of the wisdom that comes from God, then even if you're not a teacher, and likely you shouldn't be a teacher, but but no matter who you are, if you have been enlightened by the knowledge of God, then put your wisdom on display, he said, in the way you live. It's demonstrable faith. I'll tell you, uh, the end of chapter three here, the beginning of chapter four is woven through. It's one of the best texts in all of the Bible to reinforce, reinforce so many of the things that we as a church family have been leaning into in the last year or so. Not only our mission statement, which talks about uh, being united in sacrifice and being a loving community and glorifying God as we reveal Christ in our actions, but our vision pillars, which talk about things like radiant peace and revolutionary kindness that talk about unforced appeal. It's interesting here in 13, the word here where it says, by your good conduct, let him show his works. When it's talking about good conduct, there are two different words that can be translated into the English word good. And one of the Greek words has to do with moral good. It has to do with good behavior. That's not this word here. The word here that's translated good has more to do with loveliness or appeal. 
So what he's saying is, are you wise and understanding? Do you know God? Then put on an appealing life. Put on a lovely life in the meekness of wisdom in all that you do and say and in all of your actions. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about demonstrable faith. He's talking about viewing the invisible in a life that is appealing. Well, the fourth pillar of our, of our vision statement is the idea of unforced appeal that draws people in because we are unique, because we are different. We have this unblushing oddity that draws people in. Well, the oddity is that we live a life that is pure and peaceable and reasonable. All these things we'll see in the text. So he says, are you wise? And you sitting at home, you listening, you may be tempted to go, yeah, I know God, I've got some sense of wisdom. He says, put it on display then. By living a lovely life, by living a good or appealing life, an attractive life in conduct that displays the meekness that comes from wisdom. Meekness is not a word that would have been, uh, would have been loved during the time period in which James wrote this. They thought of people who were meek as being weak or sort of throwing their lives away. But we recognize that Jesus himself described himself as gentle and lowly. There is a sense in which meekness, the meekness of wisdom is the recognition on the part of a created being that I have limited power and I have limited knowledge and that I am flawed at the core of me. And it is only because of the redemptive power of God that I bring anything good to the table. There's a wisdom that produces meekness because I understand exactly who I am and how desperately I need a redeemer, how desperately I need a savior. And that lens allows uh, the rest of my interactions with other people to be affected, right? Because I know I'm fallible. It's worth noting that everything we're reading here today as far as this good life or this lovely life that goes on display in relation to wisdom, it all happens in relationship. It's all happening in our interactions with one another. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good or lovely conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But he says, be careful here because there is another way of thinking or there's another way of life. Remember that in the end of the text we studied last week, he said, you don't get both fresh water and brackish or salt water, sour water out of the same spring. You don't get figs and olives from the same tree. He says, you have to look at your life. And in that case, he was talking about looking at your speech and figuring out what the source is like, what's going on in your heart. Because what comes out of you is revealing what's happening inside. Now he says, you have to be careful because there is a wisdom that comes from above, but there's also a mindset or a worldview that comes from the natural world, from the unspiritual world, from the demonic world. And if that's what's being produced in your life, you're putting something that is counter-Christian on display. You're putting something that is wicked on display. He says this. He says in verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That word bitter there, he says bitter jealousy, or your translation might say bitter envy. That word bitter is the very same word that's used in the verses above when it's talking about the salt water. It's a brackishness or a sourness. And in fact, when he says in verse 14, when he gives us this juxtaposition or this warning, when, it, when it's translated in our Bible, bitter jealousy or bitter envy, the word jealousy and envy there in the original language doesn't mean what we think it means. It's, it's not always just us looking and going, well, I wish I had what Brad had or I wish I had the life that Christina has. It's not just jealousy and envy the way we think about it, but it's more about an overarching passion or zeal. In fact, maybe a better way to translate that would be if you have bitter passions or you have a sour zeal, that might be a better, if, if you're passionate toward the wrong things, 
And you couple that, here it says, with selfish ambition. Now that selfish ambition, the way that's translated, is is good. But the idea there is not just something internal, but something that's divisive. In fact, in most of the places where this idea of selfish ambition is translated in the scripture, it's typically translated into the word strife or conflict. It's about a breakdown in harmony with other people. He says, where you have a sour zeal or a corrupted passion... Where you have bitter envy or jealousy, selfishness, and you couple that with a selfish ambition, this strife or this breakdown of communication, division, a selfish means for promoting one's own interests, right? That's what selfish ambition here means. When there is a selfish means for promoting one's own interests and a brackish or a salty zeal, a corrupted zeal, everything starts to fall apart. He says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it. And be false to the truth. Two warnings he gives. He says, look at the water that's flowing out of your spring to figure out what kind of spring you got going on. But if what's coming out is a false or a sour passion, if what's coming out is division and strife because of your selfish ambition, he says, understand that that is saying something about the source and you don't want to boast about it. On one hand, he says, don't boast about it. Isn't it crazy that we live in a world now where pride or selfishness or the ability to you know, put oneself up the ladder by knocking down whoever it gets in your way. Isn't it interesting that we live in a world in which that kind of thing is the sort of thing we would boast about? That we would boast about our self-indulgence. That we would boast about our pursuit of selfish pleasure. That we would boast about our pursuit of, of increased finances and that we were willing to do whatever we had to do to get a leg up in the world. We live in a world that does not necessarily uh, look with a frown upon selfish ambition or, or corrupted zeal, but instead, many times, corrupted zeal is the thing that we elevate people for. They get their own television shows, right? He says, don't boast about it because it's wrong. It's not unlike what we see in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, it says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He's going to, James will use a similar language in chapter four in a second. He says, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. What does he mean by that? He means that it's just whatever they're hungry for that, that drives their decisions and their, their interactions with other people. Their God is their belly. And he says, they glory in their shame. What's that mean? It means they boast about things they should be ashamed of. They're proud of things they should be humiliated by. Here Paul in Philippians says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. It's very, very similar. In fact, I, I would guess that Paul, when he writes Philippians, has some of James's teaching and some of Jesus's teaching in his mind. What James says, where selfish ambition, right, and jealous, jealousy, right, bitter jealousy rule, where those things are happening, there is, uh, there is no need to boast. And he says also, he says, don't brag about it, but also don't cover it up. Look at what he says at the end of 14. He says, do not boast and be false to the truth. He's like, it's nothing to brag about, but it's also not something that you should brush under the rug. It's not also something you should hide. You don't want to be a hypocrite about it. Why? Because as long as you pretend like you aren't driven by selfish ambition, as long as you pretend that you aren't driven by, by sour zeal or a corrupted jealousy, right? As long as you pretend like you're not driven by those things, you'll never have a desire or the ability to transform them. 
It is only when we humble ourselves, as we'll see in chapter 4, it's only when we humble ourselves and we weep and wail and grieve and mourn over our own brokenness that our brokenness can begin to be transformed. But the moment that we're willing both to go, man, I am selfishly ambitious and I'm the only one who's right and nobody else around me knows what they're doing and I'm proud of the fact that I've got the corner on the market when it comes to wisdom, when we're boasting about our pride, that's wrong. And when we pretend we don't have any pride, that also is, you hear the warning bells? You hear the flashing lights? You hear the sirens? Our world would want to tell you, hey, do whatever you have to do to take care of yourself. You are right, right? Nobody else knows what they're talking about. James says, careful, careful. If you have selfish ambition and bitter jealousy or bitter envy, there should be warning bells going off. There should be warning. Don't, don't boast in it. And don't be false to the truth. Why? Look at what he says in 15. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. He says, this isn't God's wisdom. This isn't the kind of wisdom that Job was talking about that begins with the fear of God. He says, it's something else. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This is, here's what it is. It's earthly unspiritual and demonic. Three different things that all kind of hold hands here. One of them is earth, earthly. The idea there is that it's worldly. The, the connotation of worldliness in the Bible is always connected with wickedness. But I would also say that it, it, it puts on display an inability to see the kingdom of God. When you're functioning in an earthly mindset, you're functioning as if this planet and these interactions and these bank accounts and these bodies are the only thing that matter. He says that mindset is earthly. Not only that, it's unspiritual. What does he mean by that? He, mean, he means it's, it's in alignment with the mindset of someone who is unregenerate, someone who has not been saved. So if you're a Christian, you put your faith in Christ, in his death and resurrection, in, by his grace, his extension of resurrection life to you. In the moment you put your faith in him, you are made new. The old is gone and the new has come. But when you operate out of bitter jealousy and envy, out of this false passion, And this selfish ambition that drives everything you do, not only is that an earthly mindset, but it's functioning out of a mindset that looks as if the Holy Spirit isn't even present in you. It's an unregenerate mindset. It's earthly, it's unspiritual, and he'll double down and go one step even further and say, it's satanic, demonic. Now you might want to find a way in your own mind to soften this a little bit. Like, well, are you saying that it's demonic for me to, you know, believe in myself? Are you saying it's demonic for me to push forward my own agenda if I know I'm right? Well, I'm not, I'm not saying that, although I, I mean, I guess I'm echoing it, but James is saying it. He says, where selfish ambition and boasting about bitter jealousy and envy, where those things reign, it's not the wisdom from above, but it's the brackish water that pours out of a sour spring. And he says it's earthly and unspiritual and demonic. He'll go one step further, look at 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Disorder and every vile practice. Division, disorder, chaos, people divided, people fighting with each other. Division both uh, between people who should be family and should be brothers. And then division in every other place. And when he says every vile practice, what he means is sin in every thought and word and deed and attitude. Everything is affected. Everything is affected if you're functioning according to the wisdom of this world. If you're functioning according to to a wisdom that is not from above, that does not have God as its source, but instead is just the natural, unspiritual, demonic thinking of the rest of the world. He says it will breed disorder and chaos, which we see. We constantly see people at each other's throats. 
So it will bring disorder and chaos in every vile practice. That kind of thinking ultimately reaps a harvest of wickedness in every category. That kind of thinking ultimately reaps a harvest of wickedness in every kind of category, which you'll juxtapose in a second. He says in 16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. And every vile practice feels heavy, doesn't it? Feels like a lot. And we would be tempted to sort of diminish it or to water it down or to make it less than it is. But remember, Jesus doesn't make it less than it is. We see uh, even in the, in the story in Mark, right? In the story in Mark where Peter tries to get Jesus not to talk about his death and resurrection. It makes sense. It makes sense that Peter would hear Jesus talking about dying and, and rising from the dead and that Peter would jump in and go, hey man, this isn't good for, your, for, for your, uh, your campaign as a revolutionary. It's not good for your Messiah campaign to be talking about dying and all this. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, it says, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priest and the scribes be killed and after three day, uh, he'll be killed and after three days rise again. Peter jumps in in verse 32. He said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This is Peter rebuking Jesus. And he's rebuking Jesus with an earthly, unspiritual, demonic mindset. He's saying, hey, this doesn't advance our agenda. This is going to throw a bunch of people off. It's going to make a bunch of people feel weird. He begins to rebuke Jesus. And Jesus turns to him, verse 33 of Mark 8. And seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You think when James calls this mindset demonic, he's kind of overstating the case? Jesus didn't think so. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here Jesus says to Peter the exact same thing James is saying to us in chapters 3 and 4. Where is your mind set? On the wisdom from above or the machinations of below? The, the, the plotting and the scheming of below. It's also not entirely different than what we see with the deception of Adam and Eve in the garden. Wouldn't you like to be wise? Wouldn't you like to see things the way God sees them? All you have to do is disobey. And Adam, seeing that the fruit was good to look at and good to the taste, he decided, yeah, okay, this makes sense. But what was happening there was something earthly and unspiritual and demonic. Now, it's interesting uh, that he gives us back to James chapter 3. He tells us what the wisdom of God produces. He's already kind of told us a little bit about what the, what the wisdom of the world produces. This selfishness, this false ambition, this jealousy, vileness, disorder. Look at verse 17. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure. First pure. Now, again, this purity of the wisdom from above, this purity is not necessarily just moral purity, although it includes that. But what it's talking about is a wisdom that is undiluted, that is unadulterated. It's pure. It's, it's the heart and mind of God without any of my agendas tacked to it. Does that make sense? He says the wisdom from above is first pure. Not only is it pure, look at 17, but peaceable. I want you to note here that all of the things that he uses to describe the, the way in which the wisdom of God is made manifest, none of them are nouns. They're not things you do once and then you did it. You did the wisdom from above. They're all adverbs, right? Pure, peaceable, reasonable, full of mercy. They're adverbs. What does that mean? Well, it means it's not just a thing you do. It's not just an action to go out and cross off the list. What it is, is a way of life that actually impacts everything you do. 
It impacts everything you do. It's not a one and done kind of a thing. It's not, it's not a, a checklist of things that you've, you were pure, you were peaceable, and now you're finished with that. But that every thought and every word and every business interaction, every conversation, every consideration about the planet on which you live or the neighbors who live next door would be informed by these characteristics, these adverbs. He says they're pure. They're peaceable. You see a lot of peaceableness in the world in which we live? I don't. I hear the warning sirens. I see the flashing lights. It says gentle. Once again, I'm reminded of the heart of Jesus who had a lot of people attacking him, who had a lot of people he disagreed with, who had a lot of people who were constantly poking and prodding him. And his response, meekness, kindness, gentleness. It says the wisdom from above is peaceable and gentle. It's open to reason. What does that mean? It means willing to have a conversation. Willing to admit that you could be wrong. Willing to admit that the position you've taken might not be the right one. That that you are fallible and broken. That there are always more perspectives to consider. Unless it's in contradiction to the very revealed word of God in the scripture. That there's, there's a reasonableness and an openness to conversation. Not only does it say that the person who's informed by the wisdom of above will be open to reason. But full of mercy. Full of mercy. I underlined that in my Bible. If you have one of our James journals at home, maybe underline that. Full of mercy. What does that mean? It means kind and caring and compassionate and forgiving to other people who disagree with you. It means generous. It means gracious. The same way that God is gracious to us, even though almost everything we do in response to him is flawed in some way. Merciful. That we would be merciful in our conversations. I'd love for you just to cast your mind back to the, even the conversations you've had in the last week, the conversations over the phone or over text or in the car. Think about the things that you've said about the people you disagree with. Think about the things in this last week that you've implied or openly stated about those who have a different position than you or those who see the world differently than you or those whose approach to COVID-19 or whatever is different than yours. You're full of mercy you open to reason? Are you peaceable? Are you pure? I hear the warning bells. I see the lights and the sirens. He says, the wisdom from above is pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit. That fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, all these things that, that only are made manifest in the context of relationship. Impartial, it says. He's already talked to us about partiality. We saw that two weeks ago impartial. What does that mean? Well, it means pure in our thinking. The ability to go, yeah, I'm not going to add weight to one side of the argument because it happens to be the one I agree with. We live in an echo chamber. We've talked about this over and over again. This world we live in is an echo chamber. You pick your position and then you go out and you find the YouTube videos and the podcasts and the documentation and whatever to back up the thing you already believed. That's not being open to reason. It's, it's not being impartial. And there is a lack of sincerity to it. The last thing he describes this wisdom from above as being is sincere. Sincere. What's that mean? It means it's not hypocritical. It means it's not saying one thing and doing another. It's not pretending to go along with someone else or or pretending to be peaceable. But in actuality, you've got all these schemes and plans happening underneath. That's what the wisdom from above looks like. And he finishes chapter 3 by saying, A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You know what that means? It means when we actively work as Jesus did to make peace, when in the wisdom of God, we put our lovely lives on display and we sow peace, you know what's, what the harvest is there? The harvest of sown peace is righteousness. 
What that means is that what it's talking about here is not the difference between two different opinions. It's the difference between right and wrong. It's the difference between truth and falsehood. The wisdom from above is true. And it produces righteousness in a, in a field of peace. The soil is peace that produces righteousness. But it could just as easily be said, and I wrote it here in my margins, it is also true, if you take this text in its context, it is also true that a harvest of sin is sown in division by those who serve themselves. A harvest of sin is sown in a field of division by those who serve themselves. What he's saying here is that when we are divided and when we are at each other's heads and when we are in constant conflict, we are not revealing the lovely life of Christ. We're not revealing the character of God or the wisdom of God. We're operating out of a sour spring, a corrupt passion and a selfish ambition that serves ourselves to the division of the body. He says, be careful. It's earthly and unspiritual and demonic. He'll give us an example of that in chapter four. Turn with me to chapter four, if you will. In four, he says, and here's just an example. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He says, I'll give you an example of this. I'm looking at the church. Remember, he's writing to the Jewish Christians that are spread out. And he says, I'm seeing all these quarrels and fights. He goes so far as to describe murder that happens because of their division. Right? He's talking about war. The war among the body and he, and he says, it's happening. That happens, he says. The, the external war among you is happening because of an internal war within you individually. Your passions are at war within you. And because there is a war going on inside you, this battle for what you want and what you think is right and what you think you deserve and what you think justice is, that internal war is producing, number one, a war with your fellow human beings. It's producing external division and chaos, quarrels and fights. Why? Because you're not getting what you want and what you think you deserve. And so because of this internal war, there is an external war. Not only is there an external war, an external division and murder and hatred and and false religiosity and whatever. He says, your prayers are hindered because of this external war. And not only are your prayers hindered in those moments where you manage to scrape up the ability to pray, you only pray for the thing you wanted in the first place. And then you don't get it. Why? Because you have these selfish desires that are at war within you. Your selfishness is even driving your faith. It's even driving your religious practice. That war within creates a war without, not only does it create a war without amongst other people, but it creates an enmity with God. You make yourself out to be an enemy of God and how audacious, how horrid is the idea that someone who's been saved by the grace of Christ, who's been blessed with the opportunity to reveal him on the face of the planet would be living like someone who is distanced from God. You and I, if the spirit of God lives within us, cannot be distanced from him, but we can live lives that put on display what to all intents and purposes looks like we are God's enemy. In our divisions. He says, what causes these fights and quarrels? It's your own passion. There's your wrong motives. There's your coveting. There's your murder. There's your selfishness. There's your religious manipulation and your blasphemy. There's a service of yourself. War within leads to war without. First John chapter three, 
verse 11 says this, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. This is John writing. You've heard from the beginning we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. How do we know that we've been transformed internally? Because we love each other. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. What James is saying, what John is saying, what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, when he says, you cannot serve two masters because you'll love the one and hate the other. You'll hate the one and love the first. You can't serve both God and mammon or or selfishness, right? is that the two don't work together. It's like salt water and and fresh water flowing out of the same spring. It does not happen. So what do we do? We look at this and we go, I mean, if you're like me, you look at this and you go, oh man, I can think of ways just in this last week when I was driven in my conversation by hatred for my brother, by selfishness, by quarreling, by bitter ambition, bitter envy and jealousy, this corrupted zeal. What do do I do? Well, he's going to give us an answer to that too. But I want to I give you a little bit of hope. Remember that in Acts 2.42 and following, when it describes this Christian community at their beginning, it describes them as people who loved each other really well, who worshiped together and gave up everything they had in service of one another. They were breaking bread in each other's homes and gathering daily and that their number was growing and they were growing in favor with God and man. This is a church that that now, not even 40 years later, James is having to write to and say, hey, you know what? What happened to us? Remember who we were when we were giving up everything we had in service of each other? Now look at us. We're killing each other because of our selfish ambition and our bitter envy. He says, this, this shouldn't be who we are. And he wants us to feel the weight of it. He wants us to feel the places in which we are broken. Because then look at James 4, look at verse 5 and 6. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? This is not what God wants for us. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. If you're using a James journal, circle that a couple of times, underline it, get your highlighter out. Draw some arrows in the margins, a couple of exclamation points. Church, have you blown this? Have you been operating from the mindset of the earthly, unspiritual, demonic, creating disorder and and vile actions because of a selfishness war that's going on inside of you? The great news for you is he gives more grace. Repeat it to yourself. He gives more grace. Think Think about the story of the prodigal son in Luke. Where after all that the prodigal son had done, he'd spent his father's inheritance, he'd lived this crazy life, he finally turns back to his father's home. Not even with the purest of motives, to be honest, mostly just to get a a warm place to sleep. And when he comes back, what's the father's response? The father's response is to run to him and to embrace him and to hold on to him. When he returns in humility... The father embraces him. He gives more grace. Jesus told that story on purpose. And James is repeating this idea to us because he knows that a text like this holds up a mirror and shows the ugliness of who we've been. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So what do we do? We humble ourselves. 
We admit, remember when it said earlier, hey, if you're driven by bitter jealousy or or a corrupted zeal and selfish ambition, don't pretend like that's okay and also don't ignore it. Well, what's the opposite? The opposite is recognize it isn't okay and admit you've been doing it. Admit that you've been creating division and discord. Humbly come back to the Father who gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is what he's saying. He's saying if there is is an internal war of your own selfishness and passions that are creating an external chaos, an external division, then the way to resolve that, if you've got division with your fellow man and you've got enmity with God, right, then the key is to recognize what you've been doing, to recognize that you've been producing a brackish water instead of the pure water of the wisdom of God. And in humility, you come back and, and there's some war language here. There's still some war language. He says, submit to God. That isn't just the idea of, of submission like we think of in wrestling. That submit there is the idea of aligning oneself with another purpose. It's the idea of signing up for the Navy, right? It's about allegiance. Submit yourself to the army of God, it says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's military language. What's he saying? He says, take all of that war within you and all of that war that's been external, And use it to fight the enemy instead of each other. We are so preoccupied with our bitter envy and our jealousy and our right stances and our positions that have to be defended to the death that we are forgetting we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. He says, take all of that warfare and focus it on your enemy, the devil. Stop fighting each other and resist the devil. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, you double-minded Be wretched and mourn, verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. There's a a lot of talk these days about lament. But most of the time, when people are talking about lament, they're talking about lament in terms of like, oh, I'm really sad, or this is a really hard season we're going through, or there's a lot of bad things that have happened in my life. It's not wrong to lament the difficult seasons of your life, but that's not what James is talking about here. He's not saying, "Be, be sad about all the bad things that have happened to you, or be sad about how hard your life is. What he's saying is, be sad about the ways in which you've been putting on display an earthly, unspiritual, demonic approach. Grieve over it. Because our temptation is to go, wow, that was a really great sermon. There are probably some of you who are already thinking up ways to you know, write me a quick email or whatever. And go, oh, I, re- I really like that. I know some people who definitely need to hear that. No, you grieve, you mourn, I grieve, I mourn. I let the weight of it hit me that I have been earthly and unspiritual and demonic in my approach in these days. In certain places and certain times, there is a call for us to humble ourselves. And what happens when we humble ourselves, when we're wretched and mourning and weeping, we let our laughter be turned to mourning for the ways in which we've blown this. We've quarreled and fought and killed. He says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Replace your warring passions with the wisdom of God. Peace within leads to peace without. Peace within leads to peace without. Right? And peace amongst ourselves, peace amongst ourselves as the body of Christ is the soil in which righteousness blooms. The opposite of that is true, right? 
it says it in no uncertain terms in this, that our peace is the soil in which truth and righteousness and God's glory is harvested. But it is also truth that in our division and in our selfishness and in our pride and in our discord and every vile practice, that soil only produces sin. It only produces a misrepresentation of the character of God. So let us be people, you and I, who sow peace, who seek peace, so that a harvest of righteousness can be produced, not just in us individually, but in us as a community. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would convict us, that you would not allow us to nod our heads and, 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 you know, smile out of the corner of our mouth at a text that we think other people need to hear. But God, would you allow us to recognize that you've given us a spectacular gift that we have access to the wisdom from above that is first pure and peaceable, that is open to reason, that is gentle. God, I pray that you would help us to be people who put your wisdom on display as we live lovely lives of unforced appeal, as we live demonstrable faith and radiant peace and revolutionary kindness, and we reject the thinking of this world, the brackish, foul passions of this world that would divide us and only sow wickedness and evil. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.